We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. of a day for Gabriel, but you'll have to stay tuned to find out which one. This is the Arsenal Vision Post-Match Podcast. My name is Elliot Smith, the Twitter, Yankee Gunner. That's right. Um, you know, they, they lift you up. They, these footballers, sometimes they, they, they lift you up, but sometimes they got to take you down first before they lift you up. A little bit of that going on with Gabriel Magalia. It's not Gabriel Jesus or Gabriel Martinelli, uh, but a big day for one of the trio of Gabriels and a big day for Arsenal. And I think in a season where it's been a lot of fun so far, it continues to be fun, but we get to see the team respond to adversity. We get to see the team dig deep and and really have to bring themselves back from the brink of what I think would have been a very dispiriting result, and it winds up being a very big result. And so while, while I would have taken Liverpool's 9-0, I think they're sitting there wishing they had our 2-1. I bet they're sitting there wishing that. And I do want to thank Liverpool for not getting the 10-0 and forcing me to rethink my entire outro to the podcast and starting over from scratch, so that's nice. Um... We had an instant reaction with Clive and Paul after the game over on Patreon. If you want to listen to that, we are going to be doing some deadline day stuff this week, uh, probably a live stream or something like that. Kind of depends. With deadline day, you always have to gauge, is there actually going to be any value to doing the stuff? Or are we just going to be sitting there like playing sounds of cricket? So we'll see. But if there's something worth doing, we'll do it. I think one of the things that we want to track, kind of like the stock market, is how high can the Anthony price go? Like it looks like it might be a hundred million for Man United to buy Anthony, but I feel like I like I actually hold out for a little more. Like, can we get to one twenty? Can we get to one fifty million? Let's find out. Okay, here with me now to talk actual Arsenal stuff and the big win over Fulham is Paul. You can find him on Twitter. Pause in my pants. Hello, pause. Woohoo! And Tim, you can find him on Twitter. Stroberto. Hello, Tim. Hello there. Uh, apologies. One of my neighbors has just decided to start mowing the lawn. So if you hear the distant hum of a lawnmower, uh, that's why. Yeah, but you know what? That just reminds us that we are not yet through the beauty of summer. So that that's a good thing. Keeps all in the ebullient spirit of the moment. Um, Clive is taking a well-deserved holiday or vacation, depending on where you are and how you say it. So we wish him well. He will almost certainly then get FOMO of not being in the conversation and wind up joining for several of the pods during his vacation. So we will wait to see how that develops. Um, so we have a little bit of news. I, I think the news that Arteta gave is that Zinchenko and Party 
Neither are clearly available for midweek. It's, it's still up in the air. We'll have to see. Uh, judging from Zinchenko running the touchline to celebrate with his teammates, I don't think the knee could be too bad. But, Tim, the natural starting point for this conversation is the lineup in the absence of Thomas Party and Alexander Zinchenko. And it's interesting, right, because I have been saying all season that I think we've moved away from a total reliance on Thomas Party. But the irony is, one of the reasons we've been able to move away from that, I think, has been the introduction of Alexander Zinchenko. So I thought it was going to be really interesting to see how Elneny, sort of, kind of, maybe, but really Karen Tierney changed the way we built play, changed the way we progressed the ball, changed the way we were able to access some of the areas that we've had access to, thanks to those two players, and in particular Zinchenko. So at a very high level, do you have sort of initial reactions to seeing especially, I think, Tierney, the, the difference in the way they play and the difference in the way we tried to progress the ball were able to um, move the ball up the pitch with those two players missing. Yeah, I, I think this is by far the most fascinating thing about the game, both in advance and um, in in terms of the way the, the game turned out. thought you guys covered this really, really well on the instant reaction, by the oh, way. Okay. I was saying to Paul off mic, like, when I listen to the podcast and I'm not on it, my barometer for how good it is is, mm. did you guys say all the stuff that I would have said if I was on <laughs> it? And, and on this occasion, you did. Because I think what you really... It's not just, you know, missing party in Zinchenko... But those two are basically a double pivot at the base of our midfield. That's kind yeah. of how they operate. So those two positions, as counterintuitive as it sounds for your defensive midfielder and your left back, they come as a pair and that pair was completely changed. And uh, I know we all had like a, a good discussion about El Nenny's performance on Twitter. And um, I feel like, like El Nenny and Zinchenko would have been, you know, would have been absolutely fine, basically. The, but the fascinating thing about Tierney is because there's there's a challenge to Tierney now uh and and like I think a good one a positive one not a kind of well you're an idiot no one likes you anymore like basically Zinchenko has switched up what that role is and so there are a couple of questions there's is does Tierney do what Zinchenko did so right. that there's continuity or does Tierney keep on doing Tierney things so we have so we can give teams different problems oh, either one of yeah. either one of those is is good if it comes off um but it i mean it looked like to me like Tierney was to, you know asked to do Zinchenko things come inside come into midfield and obviously he's not as natural so the question is can he learn it now i think he can and uh, and this is another thing that like a good coach has to do and a good coach should relish is teaching people things. So we've seen Xhaka adjust his position. We've seen Partey adjust his position. And we've seen some players who really handle that. And we've seen some players during his tenure who haven't been able to handle that. Right. Personally, I think highly enough of Tierney that he can learn it. I also think the thing is with Tierney is we've kind of seen him operate on the interior of the team anyway, just when we were playing a back three. So he used to do that outside of the like the back three as it was, and he used to roll inside and outside, depending on the phase of play. Now, obviously, he was doing that further back. He was doing it in the defensive line rather than the midfield line. The principles are the same. It's just there's more pressure on you in midfield. But we've seen him do that. We know he can do that dual role from when we were playing a back three and he does it for Scotland. He rolls in and outside. He rolls outside to support Robertson and then he rolls back inside to defend. So I think he can do it. He's not going to be able to do it, I don't think, straight away and there's going to have to be some patience there. And if Zinchenko is out for the next couple of games, 
like if you're Tierney, you're think you've got to think right. Here we go. Here's my challenge. Like I might have three, four games here where Zinchenko can't play. I I need to you know I need to get on and and show that mm-hmm. I can do this. And then maybe I play so well that Zinchenko can't get back in. Just like Tommy Asu can't get back in the team. Just like Smith Rowe can't get back in the team. So that's his kind of challenge now. And like I said, that's a good one. That's not. It depends how you take the challenge. That's not. I don't think that doesn't have to be a. Are we moving beyond Tierney? I think that's a. If Tierney shows that he can do that to a good level, you've got a really complete fullback there because you've got a guy who can go inside, and we already know he can bomb up and down and do Tierney things. So this is about: Do I become like a much better player here? Do I add a little bit to my game? And or or if if he doesn't or he can't, then Arteta really has has the choice of do we just have two left backs who do different things, and that has good sides and bad sides. So, I, I thought it was really really interesting. That obviously there was a bit of a drop off, but I think that was as much about the pairing, because I think I, I'm sure we'll get onto Elneny later, so I won't do that now. But I think maybe Elneny Zinchenko is probably a slightly more natural double pivot than Elneny Tierney was. Um, but it, it wasn't a problem in this game. It was a drop of a couple of percent and we dealt with it, basically. That's the thing, right? That's the interesting thing that you hit on there because if you said to me, what two players, if you took out two players from this team, what would have the biggest impact on the way we build play, progress the ball, access the final third, that kind of thing? I'd say it's Party and Zinchenko. I wouldn't say they're the most important players for everything we want to do, but for that aspect of the game. I think my thing with Tierney, by the way, is more just that Zinchenko's so good at, at being in the space to be available, then timing is passed to the next player who's available. And I think Tierney maybe doesn't have as good an appreciation of space, but also he likes to carry the ball to where it needs to go as opposed to laying off that pass quickly. So it maybe slows things down a bit. But Paul, the interesting thing is, whatever you want to say about El, uh, El Neni, and we all know, right? We all know he, he, he if his back is to goal, he's not going to turn and face. He's going to wall pass. He's going to give it to the nearest guy next to him. But... Be that as it may, it wasn't really an issue in this game in the sense that <clears throat> we had 75% possession. I think 73% at the end, 75% in the first half. And just looking at some of the numbers, I mean, 80 attacking third passes to seven for Fulham, right? 10 inside the penalty area. We we had 291 passes to 69. We completed 87% of our passes. What's interesting to me is I thought the story of the first half was the way we were pressing them deep and they couldn't get out. And a lot of nearly chances or big chances sort of, were being generated by them just turning the ball over deep in their own half. I mean, they had 59% possession in the first half. So to me, this game, at least in the first half, wasn't really about needing El Elneny and Zinchenko to progress the ball because we spent a lot of the half in the dangerous areas. For me, the story was actually not turning the most dangerous possession into shots. And a lot of times, you know, it was Martinelli getting one taken right off his toe when he was in off a turnover. It was Gabriel Jesus, a lofted ball, you know, over to him from Martinelli, taken off his toe right at the last moment before he gets a shot. You know, Saka deciding to cut in on his left. It's, you know, it's saved well by um, by Leno. It's funny, I sort of had a brain fart in the middle of the game. They were cutting to a clip of Leno and I'm like, we're starting Leno today? Is something wrong with Ramsdale? And I'm like, oh, oh no, right. <laughs> He's a full-on player now. But so, I mean, what do you think of the idea that, yes, of course, we're going to be different with Tierney and Elneny, but actually in this game, we didn't see that show up as much because we spent so much time in the attacking third and really prevented them from getting out. Yeah, so I think Elneny is one of those where um, nine games out of ten, 
Um, it's not that important that he's the guy coming up with the magic. He's kind of the continuity hub guy, and he's good at it. He's kind of a rhythm tempo guy. Um, I, when you have a single uh, point in midfield and you have Chaka and um, Odegaard pushed up ahead of them and the team can support the possession, um, it really doesn't matter whether it's El Elneny who's coming up with the magic. In fact, it's probably better if it's not El Elneny because uh, that's a guy they're going to press. So you mentioned the wall pass, but like if Saliba, White, uh, Gabriel are looking up upfield, why would we want El Elneny to spin around, try and beat a guy and come up with a line breaker when Saliba's already looking upfield and has his passes picked out? And mm-hmm. I think in most games... You don't like it's great if party can do it, um, and add in two or three or four great passes a game instead of El Nenny's one. Um, but it really doesn't change the course of the game. There's very few games in which you need party to be both a great shield and a great line breaking passer. Like it, it obviously takes a little pressure off other players or pulls a player or two to midfield. Uh, to open up some gaps, but like, if you're just rocking and rolling, it's probably more important that you dumb down your game and keep feeding your Odegaards, your Chakas, your Zinchenkos, White, Saliba. Like, a, it, there's a bit. If you're as good as Party at that, great. Everybody else should play that role very, very simply. Even if you're better than El Nenny, you should probably play it like El Nenny and not try and do a Party. Um, Can I? Just, oh, yeah, go ahead. Sorry, I, I was sorry. I thought you'd finished. I, I wanted to add on this because <laughs> I was about to jump into. <laughs> We're wow. all chopping at the bit. <laughs> Don't take a breath, Cause, Paul. Because, <laughs> because again, Paul, you, you've basically said something that I wanted to say. Because I was thinking about this a lot after listening to the instant reaction. The thing is with Elneny, right? I don't think it's just that he passes sideways and backwards and doesn't lose the ball. I think we do progress the ball with Elneny. We just do it slightly more slowly. What happens? Like, obviously, this is best case, right? You give Party the ball. He gets the old steering wheel out like when you're reverse parking he Mm -hmm. turns and he punches it through the lines and the ball goes from center half to Erdegaard in five seconds that's the ideal I think with Elneny there you still get the ball up there just in a couple more passes so I don't think it's just he passes sideways and we don't go anywhere it's that like Paul said it's that wall pass thing and that's why I think if you'd had Zinchenko yesterday basically as a team you have to retune to El Nenny a little bit, you have to be like, okay, we're not just going to give him the ball and him give it to Erdegaard. If I give him the ball, he's going to wall pass and we're going to go that way. And, you know, look, look, probably the greatest midfield of all time, that famous Barcelona midfield under Guardiola. They did that as well, that slightly more rhythmic way of getting the ball upfield. It's like with Party, you do it in two passes. With El Nenny, you probably do it in five, and it's not him playing the pass, but it's the, okay. And I think Zinchenko would have understood that as well. I think Zinchenko would have just gone, okay, I'll pass you the ball, I'll move for the wall pass, and we'll just go up like that. Like, um, what's that old, uh, like, very, very old video game, like the tennis one? <laughs> um, the, um, like the kn- knockout or the... the um, yeah, yeah, the where they... The, the two sliding just thing and the ball goes exactly, back and forth. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> like with El Nenny, you progress like that, and it takes a bit longer, but I think you still get there, basically. 
Yeah, now now I'm going to be wondering what that's called for the rest of the day. So thank you for that. Uh, Paul, you want to finish up on the thought that you weren't done with, but took a yeah, ill-advised breath? so rudely cut across there. Um, you were like, like Gabriel for the own goal, right? Everything was going fine, you ha- and then you just dawdled <laughs> on it for a minute, and boom, it's taken from you. Next thing you know, Tim's making all the good points, and you got nothing left. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, I just think there's a big – it's a spectrum, and like – if you're near the party end of the spectrum, do party stuff. Everybody else, like if you're only 80%, let's say El Neni is 40% of what party can do uh, on the exciting, in the exciting part of the game. Um, like if you're, you can do 60 or 70% of what party can do, you're probably better off playing like El Neni. Um, yeah, I see what you mean. Yeah, just keep it simple. And like, I agree with what Tim said. It just sounded a little depressing because it was two versus five passes. And I think it could be two versus three, right? Because you got Saliba there looking upfield with a better view than El Neni or Party may have. And like, how many times in a game does Party really split things open? Two, three times you'll do a turn or a spin they weren't expecting. So yeah, you lose something. There's no two ways about it. Uh, he gives an option through the midfield and maybe pulls them a little more centrally to open up some gaps, etc. But also, there's nothing wrong with a little bit of rhythm, rhythm or tempo. There's nothing wrong with moving it uh, out to the left and then across to the right instead of straight up the middle. It's nice to have the additional yeah. variety, but nine times out of ten, it's fine. Tempo it to Saliba White, guys in good positions who already have Odegaard lined up. And and it's interesting, right? Because you look at where the slack is picked up. Ben White had a brilliant game, you know, yep. uh, just really, really influential. I think getting more and more comfortable with this right back position. I know Clive is somewhere cringy. That's not right back. You don't have to label it right back. Explain a different. I get, I get it. I get it. It's not like traditional right back, but the position that he is playing, which we will call right back, he's doing better and better. I mean, I, I didn't notice it at the time. William Saliba was ninety-one of ninety-six passing in this game. 91 of 96. And like, you can look at the pass map. It's not just tapping it over to Gabriel. Like there's, there's an extent to which he became a little bit of party, right? Just a little bit. He had just a little bit of that role himself and, and you know, what a player he's turning into. Tim, I want to go forward. Could could even add, like, I think Gabriel at times had a really good passing game. And one of the advantages with El Neni is, you know, the ball's coming to you or, Mm -hmm. There's a really good chance it's going like it really it can work both ways. There's an advantage to the disadvantage to the opposition knowing it's coming, an advantage to us knowing that one of three guys is about to receive the ball. So they're all looking upfield for somebody to pick out. So it's yeah. pluses and minuses. I, I think one of the problems with like falling behind in this game is I think it created the the sense that somehow we weren't playing well or something. And I, I think yeah. whether, I mean, we, we had 2.5 XG. Now some of that is game state. I get it. But like we still had plenty of shots and chances in the first half. We had plenty of shots and chances in the second half. The only way they were going to get anything is if we gift it to him, we gift it to him. We still get the goals. Our performance deserved, right? This wasn't 0.7 to 0.6. And we edged it. I mean, 2.5 expected goals is a ton of expected goals. There were a lot of good chances, 22 shots to 11, 75% possession. So I, I think falling behind hides the dominance. I watched NBC puts together a, a package, like a 15 minute highlight of the game package. And you watch that and you think Fulham were never in the game. And you know what? 
they really were never in the game, except to be fair, when we finally get the two, one lead and then we start shitting our pants and giving them some chances. Yeah, go ahead. Of the four games, like I think, this might be my favorite. It's fucking of course, great. Of course it was. Of course it was. Oh, no. oh it was fantastic. <laughs> you like, love a little because, adversity in your football. <laughs> well, because we had to play for 90 minutes, uh, yeah. and like when we go a goal down, we go fucking bonkers. And and we have to slay the beasts of that Arsenal can't come back from a, from a yeah. losing position thing. Because I will say this, to your point, the thing that used to really frustrate me under Arteta and Emery in the last few seasons is we go behind and he'd be like, all right, now we got to go for it. But we couldn't create that siege that you need to yeah. create on these lesser teams. This was a siege when we went behind and it didn't stop until we had the lead. But Tim, the, the key to this whole thing is the captain. The, this, is, this is interesting and I don't know if it's, Soft factors, skill, you know, however you want to phrase it. But Odegaard gets his two goals last game. And then he comes into this game, and it's like he's gone up another level still. He was everywhere. Now, I I have said in the past often that what Odegaard needs to, you know, remember to do is he doesn't need to come for the ball. He can stay advanced more so players can find him in pockets of space. Nah, screw that. He was dropping back to get the ball. He was carrying it between the lines. He was stepping up, um, you know, in the in the final third. The goal he scores... All right, it's deflected. I think it's going to be a goal anyway, but it's the little step over he does to clear it for the shot. Like he was imperious. I mean, they they nearly had a big chance, but the guy falls over, but he falls over because Odegaard really cleverly runs with him, tugs on the shirt a little, but not so much, right? He doesn't do enough to give the referee a decision, but he does enough to make the player aware of his his presence there. Like it was a it was a the kind of performance that makes you want to get into the you know, captain leader legend thing, right? Like it was a leadership performance in terms of being everywhere he needed to be, but doing it through quality. I, I thought this was as good a game as I've seen. And one of the sort of secret little things that he does that I think is so good. And I think this comes from positional football, knowing where your teammates are going to be when he's in that right half space and he gets it under pressure, the speed with which he's able to switch it and pop it out to the other side. You know what I mean? Like he'll, he'll, like a an in swinger out to the left back or or out to Martinelli from the right half space, and it forces the defense to have to try to swing over. When you can switch quickly, that's what creates instability for for the defense. And he's so good at that. So that's a long rambling way of saying, "Wow, what a performance from a player who's just getting better and better." Yeah, hundred percent. It was um, you know I've said a few times on the pod this season that there there always just seems to be a game for one of the attackers, and this was very definitely the Erdegaard game. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe a little bit the Inketia game. Maybe we'll come on to that. We definitely um, will. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, he, he was just absolutely sensational. And what The thing is, the performance he put in, like we have seen that before. Um, we probably haven't seen it quite enough. And I only say that, again, like I've said many times before, I think Erdegaard is the kind of player you kind of um, analyse quite harshly because you recognise the talent. And he's almost never bad, do you know what I mean? Um, much in the same way that Ozil was like never bad because he's so clean on the ball and right, and yeah. everything. And even in a game where Ozil doesn't create very much like he's so good on the ball that like you don't get like a performance where he gives the ball away for example doesn't happen maybe a bit anonymous but yeah not technically lacking yeah Mm -hmm. exactly yeah the worst thing you get is anonymity or not really creating anything but this guy but we've seen this performance a few times before and i think what we all want to see is we just want to see it more often um and and like 
and that is mega harsh because this was like close to peak Erdegaard, but even slightly under peak Erdegaard is still really, really good. And we've seen that a lot. Um, but what I, I really love as well is I, I love his goal because that's the doubt you have about Erdegaard sometimes about does he take the shot on there? And by the way, the step over that leads leads to it as well but that's and and we saw signs of it in the Bournemouth game as well like I loved his second goal in the Bournemouth game because he just takes it off Gabriel Jesus's foot and that like I, I really I think and hope either there's been a conversation or the players realized himself like look sometimes I've just got to pull the trigger sometimes I've got to stop fucking passing it and pull or, or stop trying to cut back or be too clever and just and just kind of hit it and and he does this time like I feel like even in the first two games of this season, he usually passes that or he usually tries to create an angle. And he was just like, no, we're 1-0 down. I've, I need to score a goal. Like, I, yeah. need, I need to... And he, and he has that picture in his mind because you can tell with the step over, the step over is all about positioning himself for the shot. So it's not like, oh, okay, I'm here. I might as well. It's That's what's in his mind when the ball comes to him. He's like, right, if I do that, I've got an angle for a shot. And, um, this is it, why I'm an insufferable prick, prick, though. It's so funny because, like, then later in the game, he takes a really nice, like, low stinging shot from the sort of right half space, top of the box kind of area that that rebounds off Leno and Saka was wide open, and I'm like, oh, you got to pass it there. It's like, yeah, but, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. we're, we're never happy, right? Because he needs yeah. to shoot more, he needs to shoot more, and then in that moment, I'm like, well, no, don't shoot there. You know? Yeah, <laughs> never, exactly. Never like, perfect. yeah, you, you've got to find like, obviously, when you hit absolute peak premium foot like you find that balance like Henri yeah, found yeah. that balance Henri knew when to pass and when to shoot and and sometimes if you're going through a bit of a I've got to shoot more that does mean that on a couple of occasions you might just end up having to be a bit selfish yep. just to get just to get into it yeah, yeah, yeah exactly exactly so but he, he was like by a long chalk um the, the best player on the pitch and it's just one of those you know there's always more or less a best player on the pitch but this is one of those performances that like I think in February and March I'll still remember this you know I'll still be like oh god do you remember Erdegaard against Fulham in August like that's going to be like Paul said on the instant reaction like his performance in the 3-3 at West Ham very forgettable season not many games stick in the memory but but that one sticks and that's what Erdegaard's capable of he's he's one of the I think there aren't many players in the league like this who are just so good on their day that you remember for months and months, maybe even a couple of years afterwards. Yeah, and while, and, and he was the, do, yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, he was even doing the captaincy thing well because at one point I think Gabriel Jesus was starting to get wound up a little bit and it was a really poor refereeing performance. It was one of those performances where the little team was allowed to kick the big team and not get cards for it. And Jesus was getting wound up uh, and he, he got a yellow for like being mad. And Odegaard was doing a really good job, like talking to Jesus, talking him down, keeping people away from the ref, trying to keep everybody focused just on the football because the football was going fine. He didn't want him caught up with the ref. I just thought the the captaincy side of being a captain, I thought he that was on display as well. Sorry, Paul, go ahead. Yeah, so like a big part of why this game went our way was the work rate of the, fr- the front three, four pressing. Mm-hmm. Um there's very few players that can play that on fire on the ball and put in the blistering shift of pressing that he put in. Um, the re- really good examples of him and others partner two, three at a time, pushing guys to the sideline, 
losing the ball, coming back at it. We continually regained the ball when we lost it. When you think of what he did with and without the ball, it was absolutely fantastic game from Odegaard, just off the charts. I mean, I, this is this is it. This is the marker for what a great Odegaard game looks like. Almost everything he did uh, came off. He was swinging uh, crosses to the back post, and it's so important he's willing to s- take that shot when it's on, when he gets in the box, because you're probably not going to get two, three snaps at it, and you know, he, he could well be the inside position, the basically in the inside eighth spot uh, as him and Saka come into the box onto their left foot. Well, there's a good chance Odegaard's in the better position, in the better slot, closer to goal. And it's essential that he he makes this recalibration stick and goes for these kinds of shots. Um, yeah. Yeah, I thought it was fantastic. Yeah, he, he really was. <clears throat> and, I mean, maybe it was just a day where the front three weren't necessarily at his level, but I remember saying earlier in the season, like the great thing about this front three is someone's going to have a big game every game and, and be the one who lifts the team. You know, someday it'll be Martinelli. Some days it'll be Saka. Some days it'll be Jesus. But actually some days it's going to be Odegaard and having that extra guy. I mean, I I think if Odegaard is going to get 12 goals this season, if Odegaard's going to get 10 goals, this like that's a big, big difference for us in terms of taking the pressure off some of the other players and also the way we might look at the firepower we have up front and may need up front. Um, but Tim, I, I want to fast forward to the, the Gabriel error for the goal and, and really approach it two ways. There's the football side of it. So what I thought was interesting after the game, you see Gabrielle and, um, and Saka in like deep conversation and Gabrielle's sort of saying like, you, you gave me a bad pass there. You know, you floated one, you put me under pressure. I think they were kind of hashing out. It's not a great pass. It's so you, you yep. can actually see him shout out B after after the <laughs> goal. After he pulls the shirt over his head, he just goes B, which is Bukayo Saka's nickname. Oh, that's right. That's that's what he's called. Yeah. <laughs> um, but but so and it's it well, so it's interesting because the all or nothing thing, it, it was one of the takeaways I had is the coach is talking to him and saying, It's your first touch. If you concentrate on your first touch, you always get everything right. When your first touch isn't right, that's when you get yourself into trouble. And sure enough, his first touch on that takes him inside, back inside, you know, sort of towards Mitrovic, towards the center of the field and onto his weaker foot. And then he needs the extra touches and he gets done by Mitrovic. And it's 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 a bad goal to give up in a game where Fulham didn't look like threatening. But Tim, it's not just the way they responded. And I, I love, you know, the way uh, Odegaard taps Gabriel on the head after scoring his goal, you know, just like picking him up. But all I could hear after they scored is the crowd chanting Arsenal, Arsenal, just as loud as ever. It was loud from start to finish. But right after Fulham scored, there was no boo, there was no come on, you know, groaning, sort of that that anxious trying to cheer the team on, but also kind of frustrated. It was pure, loud support. And it was so noticeable to me. And that, I'm not sure that's something I can remember happening a whole lot. Um, especially, you know, maybe in like a big Champions League game years ago, but not against a, a, a lower part of the table team taking a lead against us. I, I'm curious how you experienced that in the ground, the the, the immense swell of support, not just from start to finish, but directly after we've just conceded a really bad goal. Yeah, that that's that's the test, isn't it? And, um, you know, I, yeah. I said this last week on the podcast that w- we did have our faith tested in a, a very serious way at the end of last season. That was a, a bad end. It was traumatic and it was kind of our fault. 
um, but no one's taken that with them. And and you can see why um, Arteta, you know, Arteta referenced it, but it, it was strange because, like, I feel like, um, you know, Arteta's talked this up a lot during his time at Arsenal, you know, wanting the connection with the crowd. And in fact, when he took the job, the first thing he said was, you know, when he was at that, he, he'd been on the bench for the, the Man City game with City and he just said, I looked around the stadium and I felt sad about what I saw. And, you know, building that connection back up. And look, you build that connection up by being good. That that's yeah. that's always the bottom line. There's there's no other way around it. Be good, and you get that, and that's kind of why they're getting it. But I was like, I feel like he was talking it up a lot, almost to like try and manifest it. Do you know what I mean? And it was happening, yeah. but it was like I'm going to make sure I mention this every time. And actually, the first home game of last season when we got taken apart by Chelsea, someone interviewed him. I can't remember if it's Sky or NBC or whoever, but one of the the rights holders interviewed him and was like, oh, there were some grumbles in the crowd, weren't there? And, and there really weren't that many. And he he shut it down. Not only did he shut it down, he, he actually kind of didn't answer the question. Uh, he kind of just went, no, the fans were great today. They were with us all the way through. You know, we were bad, but they were great kind of thing. Like he's done that, like that Klopp thing of trying to build it up, you know? Um, and 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 at first, I, I'm sure, like in a private moment, if you had a drink with him, he'd probably say, "Yeah, I was overegging it a bit then, but that's because I <laughs> wanted this." But now it's not. And what what really um, got me about his post match yesterday, he mentioned it again, but yeah. he kind of mentioned it in passing, almost like a, it didn't feel like a deliberate, like I must say this again because I really want to build. Like it was just almost like it. That's it. It's there now. I not take it for granted but it's like it's an assumed fact and so he said something like look you know we went one nil down he almost yeah like I said in passing it's like but you know the support we have in the stadium now is great and that's like yep. that really helps the team and helps the players and it didn't feel like he was like pluming up the feathers <laughs> do you know what I mean he just mm-hmm. it just felt like yep this is something I trust it's there now it's like you know, obviously you can lose it and, you know, you can't be complacent about it, blah, blah, blah. But it's like, this is there. This is something we have now in our team. And and clearly, clearly, like it makes a difference, whether it's 1%, 0.1%, 2%, whatever. It, for him to focus on it this much, it clearly means something. He clearly thinks that his team and his players get something from it. And I think he really genuinely feels like, that made it easier because it made it easier for, you know, it, it's just, it just must be easier like to keep playing your football, you know, particularly in a game like yesterday, like you said, Elliot, we were playing well. Like I wasn't, what was it? 64 minutes or so Fulham score. And I can tell when Arsenal are doing well, when it's nil nil and I, in the second half and I'm not looking at the clock. Yeah. And I'm just not going, like it's going to come. Yeah. 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 I'm not going, <clears throat> Oh Christ, how long have we got left? Mm. You know, how many chances? I, I wasn't looking at the clock. I didn't look at the clock until we went 1-0 down. Because without that mistake, I think we just win 2-0. I think yeah. that's what happens. More and, more. and we yeah. probably score exactly the same goals and it's probably just 2-0 uh, yeah. without without giving them that. But it's, it's, it's clearly that this has been very, very important to Arteta since the moment he walked into the club. And it's not just like... That, that would be nice, wouldn't it? He clearly thinks, like, look, there are going to be times in a season where you get in a jam, and what you want when you go 1-0 down is you want 60,000 people go, like lifting you up. And I also felt, 
again, I won't go into this too much because I think we'll talk about it later, but the sub he makes immediately at 1-0 as well, like that is intent right there. That's like, right, fuck this, defender off, striker on, go for it. And and it all fed the atmosphere, I think, of the team and the, and the fans. And we're going to get into that substitution, both in terms of the choice and in terms of the performance. But Paul, you wanted to add to that? So uh, I actually have a question for Tim. I've been meaning oh, to ask him this. Um, around this whole thing, uh, like first thing I'd say is I'm immensely grateful for to Arteta for fixing our relationship with with the crowd um, and with the supporters and vice versa because I think the in some ways the crowd were the first mover, right? That you referenced last season. I mean, they were up for it before the game, the first game of the season, like from what you told me from from what you could feel uh the first three games we get reamed they were still up for it with the what was it the fourth game was norwich like they were just they weren't willing to let go the optimism thing so there was something something building there from the previous season or from just it was time to make that change so my questions around he was at city now i i think arteta would have been like this regardless because i like he's just tapped into the kind of the pillars of a successful team and that connection with the supporters. Like, why was he obsessing about An- playing at Anfield, right? He's he's recognized some pillars of not a good team, but a great team, taking a club to a great place. This is, I don't know if there's three, four pillars. I don't know what the other two, three might be, but it's probably having a good organization, backroom, blah, blah, blah. Uh, good team, good principles, but like the crowd's a big fucking deal. So here's my question. You know City of old and of new. I got to think City were laser focused because like they're into sports washing and there's all that kind of things, but also they were this perennial underdog that now is, is planning to win the league every year and they have this challenge with the Champions League and the relationship with like have city did city go through a process of obsessing about how, how to change the culture within their fans or get the the fans on board and did that kind of do you think that supplemented kind of arteta's vision of how important it is when you come into a club to build a top level club or is this all just arteta's kind of from his side his machinations You've been listening and to the way I ask and obviously, questions for too long. I mean, look, yeah. he's still going, Tim. He's still, well, the he's other, still asking the I question. I just had another thought. City are obsessed by Liverpool because they, you know, they're their competition each year. And like, they would have been obsessing about Liverpool and what they've got in terms this of the is energy. Incredible. Pers- this this, this, yeah. this exceeds even my longest ever asked question. <laughs> oh, I mean, and literally, it, no, it, I mean, that, that I want to put that in the time capsule and say, this is what the Arsenal Vision podcast is all about. Thank you. Can I cut in here, Elliot? Please do. No, Tim, I'm done. do you want to do? I mean, I don't. Yeah. I don't know that there is a question, but if you want there to is. talk, feel free to the, talk. There, there is. Yeah, yeah. So, th- <laughs> what's really interesting is um, about this. This feels much more Liverpool than City to me. So, yeah. I don't think City did do that, and there are a couple of reasons. First off, I think the weird thing is City's fan base, understandably, because they're like a completely different club now. It's flipped. They used to be like very good Hugh, because they had to be, right? There were Man City fans in the same fucking city as Manchester United. They had to have a sense of humour. They were the kind of fans that would sing Always Look on the Bright Side of Life when they were 4-0 down. That was them, 
right? They're I not those now. Days. And actually, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And actually, City is much more. And I think a lot of the a this is just moving into like that being a super club, and b I think it's down to the style they play. City to me is very much. It reminds me a little bit of like uh, Wenger's Arsenal when Wenger's Arsenal were really really good. It's more come in, sit down, have a drink. What it's like theatre. It's like watch this. We're going to take them apart four nil. And, you know, or like watching an orchestra or something that that's what cities like a little bit more for me. It's it's very like sit there, applaud all the goals when they go in, go home. But, and, and that's the type of football they play as well. Like they don't play a particularly energetic brand of football. In fact, their whole thing is effectively lulling the opponents <laughs> by just hypnotizing them with the ball. What Arteta's doing feels much more Liverpool to me. Like when Klopp came in, it was like, right, we want to play this like high energy football. And also we know we're kind of the underdogs. Like if we're going to go where we want to go, what was that great Klopp quote when he was at Dortmund? He said something like, Bayern's got a bazooka and I've got a bow and arrow. So I've got to be perfect. Um with, with a bow and arrow and and so bringing all of the kind of e- like summoning up every marginal gain to to your advantage and that feels more like what Arteta's doing it feels more Klopp than Guardiola uh, to me whereas with City I think it's much more like we'll pass you to death in front of like an audience whereas I think what, yeah. yeah whereas I think Arteta wants a crowd um, and that's probably because he realises that you know, we're in a similar position to Liverpool. We need every single marginal game we can get. It's so interesting too, though, right? Because the irony of all that, and I agree with everything you've said, is that Liverpool won the COVID season, the season there were no fans, which is really, really interesting. Well, to be fair, they won the the Project Restart, no fans, COVID season. Yeah, and to be honest, though, they'd they'd won the league yeah, like bef- that's before, true. before, yeah, before Project Project Restart. Restart. Yeah. Um, I'll just finish by saying this too. Sometimes you something happens and then you re-engineer an explanation for how it happened. I think Arteta has done a really good job focusing on repairing the relationship for sure. I think there's also been some things that really worked in our favor. First of all, COVID. Fans coming back from being away from their club and just feeling like, you know what? We missed this. We love this. We want to be behind this. The Ashburton Army, right? An, an infusion of youthful fans who had the energy and exuberance to support the team and didn't have some of the the angst, right? Didn't have some of the cynicism. Um, and then a couple of academy kids breaking through, right? So you, you, have the, you have a really good cocktail to create the support. Some new young supporters, a, a year of not being able to be close to the club, um, some academy kids coming through that you can, it's so easy to get behind a refreshing of the squad in that way. And then of course, Arteta has, has done his piece too. So I think there's a lot of factors that went into yeah. it. And with that having been said, I think one thing we all want to be able to do is watch the sport we love. If we can't be at the ground, we want to watch it. And then when we've won, we might want to watch Match of the Day, or you might want to watch that NBC highlight package, but you can't because you're out of your region and you're not able to access it because it's geo-locked or there's a Twitter highlight and you're like, it says it's not available in my region. But that can be fixed with NordVPN. NordVPN is a VPN that will obviously keep you safe when surfing from phishing scams and from... um, cookie tracking and tracking cookies. And if you're tracking cookies in my house, they're going in my mouth and in my belly. But on the internet, you don't want that. But you don't have to miss your favorite shows. You don't have to miss the highlights. 
because you can actually browse from other regions and browse privately. All right. If you want to see UK Netflix instead of US Netflix, you can do it. Right. If the all or nothing episode you want to see is coming out in the UK a few hours earlier, you can get access to it. And you can do that with NordVPN. Okay. All you have to do is use our link, nordvpn.com forward slash Arsenal Vision. You receive a huge discount on a two year plan plus one free month. So, discount and a free month. Right. You get all the privacy, encrypted data, don't have to worry about IP tracking, location tracking, and you can browse and see what you want. They've also doubled down on keeping you safe with new threat protection feature, so you can say goodbye to intrusive uh, malware. Even if you download an an infected file, threat protection kicks in, deletes it before it makes a mess of your computer. Okay, there's no risk. It's a 30-day money-back guarantee. Give it a try, and if you like it, great. If you don't, they'll issue you a refund. It's that easy. Okay, pretend the pretend the whole thing never happened. Check out our link, Arsenal Vision. Uh, pardon me, NordVPN.com forward slash Arsenal Vision, NordVPN.com forward slash Arsenal Vision to get your subscription started today. Huge discount and a free month. Do it now. And Champions League soccer is back, streaming on Paramount Plus. Nine months of heart stopping, hold your breath, exhilaration. Start September sixth with the biggest stars, top teams, and craziest fan bases across Europe. Watch every match from the group stage through the knockout rounds as Benzema and Real Madrid defend their title against Liverpool, Man City, Chelsea, PSG, Barcelona, and more in soccer's biggest club competition. So don't miss a single sweat-soaked second of regulation time, stoppage time, and extra time, and stream every match of the UEFA Champions League live starting September sixth exclusively on Paramount Plus. And a note to Paramount Plus. On this podcast, that script works better if you're talking Europa League. We hope that won't be the case next season, but it is the case this season. So don't miss a second of the heart-stopping, pulse-pounding Europa League action on Paramount+. Plus. Anyway, see all the best fan bases and best players like Saka, Martinelli, Gabriel Jesus, Martin Odegaard, William Saliba, the best coaches like Mikel Arteta, the best fans like Arsenal fans. Okay, you get the idea. Tim, is that enough of that? Yes. Yeah, can I? <laughs> yes, I, please. Can I? Can I just say, like, honestly, I I have NordVPN and I've just extended. <laughs> I've just paid full price, like literally last week, to extend. So you, you um, know, we have like you can cancel because thirty day money back guarantee, and then re up with our promo code. I will do that. exactly that. But yes, I do very genuinely use Nord. So yeah, yeah, I do as well. Great. Um. Okay. Well. That is an extended ad break that was not intended, but there you go. We, we like customer stories. We'll get a customer story here from, from Tim here. Um, good stuff. All right. So uh, a couple of notes. One of the things that I think we should talk about is let's do the positives first. Let's talk Enkedia. Uh, Paul, the fact that Enkedia comes on, I think, is interesting by itself. It shows that clearly Mikel Arteta is seeing something in training, seeing something on the pitch that says this guy is ready to really step up in the pecking order because I do think last season, Emil Smith-Rowe would be the obvious choice. Now, we don't know. Smith-Rowe might have a tight hamstring. He might be not quite fully fit and and we love him and we know he's great and maybe he'll start against Aston Villa. So it's not a it's not disparaging Smith-Rowe's quality, but it is certainly a feather in the cap for Enkedia that he was the first choice to come on in a game where we need a goal and it wasn't in for Gabriel Jesus, right? It's in for... Uh, you know, a defensive player. Um, I thought Enkedia had a brilliant, brilliant performance here. And yes, he has a couple of chances he maybe can do better with, certainly. But by and large, he, he wreaked havoc. And I think you're seeing a few things from him, one of which is just his touch looks a bit silkier. There's a little more sophistication in his moves, the way he can cut in, um, you know, and, t- and turn a man around. The It's unfortunate that he doesn't get the finish right, but the over-the-top ball, the way he kills it dead with his first touch is really good. I just think it's, there's, he doesn't have enough room to get that shot past Leno. But so, yeah, all in all, a really 
good performance that I think shows development in Enkedi's game. And he did finish this game, by the way, with our highest XG of any player in the team. So what are your thoughts, not just on the performance, Paul, but on the fact that he he was the the guy that was picked here to, to come on and help us get this game back? Yeah, it's it's very interesting. If I remember it right, we bring on Eddie on like 62 minutes because we've gone down a goal and that's our reaction. And like we don't really bring on anybody else for a long time and you wouldn't really change how we were attacking. Once he's on... We're we're going bonkers. Yep. Um, him, Martinelli, uh, Odegaard, um, uh, Saka—they're all connecting, weaving, and every touch Eddie gets, he does something with to spring us into attack. He's dropping into midfield. He's winning balls. He's winning headers. He spins, turns. His sh- shirt flowing behind him. He's strong. He's low to the ground. Uh, you may, you reference that uh, the chip over the top that he picks up. Um, like he does this beautiful little run along the back line just beforehand. He does a sprint from left wing into the center of the pitch, into the box. And like, it's a really beautiful, clever little, uh, find me, pick me out. And isn't it Odegaard who lifts it over the top? And like, you can't not see that run. And then he, he, it's almost like a, uh, a wide receivers pattern, um, shouting, I'm open to the quarterback. It, it's a beautiful little bit of play. Uh, he needs to hit that with his wrong foot is the problem. He needs to leather it with his left. And I think he had a couple of moments where he, he went with his favorite foot. I think his overall contribution, like if there's a strong part to him and Martine- Martinelli's game, Martinelli was on fire at the end. Maybe not with the crosses, though he did launch in the the important um, corner kick that we we scored from, but like everything outside of putting in his crosses, Martinelli was on fire. Um, and these guys were all clicking at the same time. So you had the Martinelli multiplier effect. It wasn't, or sorry, you had the Enkedia multiplier effect. It wasn't just him who was performing at the end. Him, Odegaard, Martinelli, Saka all went bonkers. And it was, yeah. it's fantastic. Yeah. Were you going to? Yeah. No, I I was just going to say, and and I I think what was interesting about it, Paul, too, is we did go to the back three, right? We went to sort of like a three-two-five. Is that even 10 players? That is 10 players. Um, And, you know, in the past, like I haven't, I haven't loved going to a back three as a way to chase a game. And I I, I don't know, like for me, yeah, go ahead. I was so I think that's a really interesting point. We didn't really do a lot of threeing with the back three. It was kind yes. of a yeah, as soon as we had the ball, yeah. it like sometimes we had more of a back one, like but certainly a back two. two White three, would five. get up. Uh, you know, we played what was interesting was it didn't look like a very planned substitution. The only part of the plan was, oh shit, get Eddie on. But we kept every you know, we got rid of Tierney. Um, he was probably planned to get off at about 60 minutes anyway because it's his first game. And then we had at least four different left backs in the space of about five minutes, um, none of whom were Chaka, which was the thing I didn't really want to see. But we had uh, from Tierney to Martinelli to Bakaya Saka, and then we brought on uh, Tommy a little later on. It was like anybody uh, was filling in there depending on the pattern of play and Arteta's going bonkers, but the whole thing was get the forwards on, and uh, we just leaned into it. So uh, it was interesting that we went to a back three, but White was basically up there 
in the middle of the pitch, pinging balls. It was like, just go, go, go. Sorry. No, yeah. Uh, Tim, what, what did you think of that? Because like the in the past, sometimes when we've gone to a back three, you know, and I get we weren't really playing in a back three, but whether we've made Sacco wing back or Martinelli wing, like they struggled to get involved. We actually saw their influence wane. I thought they switched sides, which was interesting. I thought both stayed involved. And in fact, one of the bigger chances we created, the one where Enkedia is on the right channel and like cuts it back onto his left foot and takes the the defender out of it. That's from a really beautiful through ball from Martinelli, for example, mm. from the sort of right wing back position. I, it just worked. And I, it's interesting because it's not a system that I've thought of as necessarily being effective for us in the past to create pressure. But it in this case, it definitely worked. And I'm curious what you think about that switch and and how we were able to keep the pressure on with that formation. Yeah, I, I think there are two sides to this substitution, which is, first of all, how much of a difference Eddie made in and of himself. I think Duncan Alexander from Opta tweeted that half of Arsenal's shots came after he came on. Now, yep. obviously, there's a lot of like game, game state. state stuff yep. going on, but my, my read of it, like I said the other day, like I've, I've just stopped looking at Arsenal as like a 4-3-3 or anything like that. I still look at it as a 5-5. And basically, I think what happened here was it went to 4-6. Mm-hmm. Like we crammed another attacking lane into that five. And what was really interesting about what Eddie did, I, I felt like Gabriel Jesus by design became more like static and his role was to pin. And Eddie just had basically, you look at where Eddie's shots came from. There's one where he cuts him from the left. There's one where he cuts him from the right. Like he was just popping up everywhere. And, you know, we talked in the summer about how do you get Eddie to sign a new deal when he knows that Gabriel Jesus is coming in. And my my speculation was that Arteta must have said to him, not only are you getting the Europa League games, but more or less you're going to be my first sub. If we're winning, I'm putting you on and taking Gabriel Jesus off to protect him. If we're not winning, I'm bringing you on because I need a goal. Basically, in every scenario, you're going to be one of the first guys I go for from the bench. And actually, that's kind of as much as I'm I'm sure Eddie would prefer to be starting it. That's actually quite a fun role to play. That must have been yeah. quite a fun role for yeah. him to come on and play and just be like, look, we've got those five lanes of attack there. They're going to stay there. And I think that's why he swapped Saka and Martinelli. Because we were cramming another lane in, you want those guys probably staying wide and you don't want people bumping into each other. So you don't want inverted wingers anymore. You just want like, right, we've got to cram one more guy in here. So you guys like don't swap positions so much. Just stay where you are kind of thing. Yep, That must be quite a fun fun role to play to just be like yeah actually all of that stuff about uh, you know Jrego uh, del Posicion and all of that we're not doing that for the last 25 minutes we need two goals go and run around and just go and get the ball and take shots <laughs> cause havoc and, take um, shots score goals <laughs> yeah and, and like it looked to me like he he enjoyed that like he was the one who had the real freedom while Sacra Martinelli were holding and uh, Jesus was trying to pin and it's just like yeah, roam and take some shots. Like this is this is playground football now. Go and have some fun. So and, and I think Eddie played that really, really well. And we've seen him in other games. He's come on wide sometimes, he's come on through the center. Here he was doing all of that at the same time. And and I also think that there's like a soft factor element to this substitution. Now, I can't remember if Eddie and Ketia was coming on anyway. Because like literally, I think I have this right that we don't even kick off again before like it's Fulham score sub so I I suspect he might have been coming on anyway but it probably wasn't going to be Tierney coming off at nil nil it's probably going to be like Martinelli or someone like that and then at the point that Fulham go one nil up it's like right 
Tierney, you're off. Um, we're taking a defender off. And and I think like the the intent of that substitution, I think it says something to your team. You know, it says I'm sure they're in no doubt and like they're not stupid. Yeah, we're one nil down, we need to win, we need to score two goals. But I think it says a couple of things from the coach. Like, first of all, straight away, like let's not feel sorry for ourselves for ten minutes. Let's not lose ten minutes fucking about and like getting up our own asses now. Now, now, now. And actually, we get... Because, like, you need two, right? And we get the equaliser quickly. And once we got that equaliser, I was like, right, okay, there's still, like, 20 minutes to go. Like, we're going to score again. Like, I'm sure we are. Whereas if you spend 10 minutes feeling sorry for yourself and then that equaliser doesn't come till the 85th minute, you don't give yourself enough time. So I, I felt that, like, from a soft factor perspective, it was, guys, now now mm. now now and now and and the other thing i think it said is that um he's so confident he's so much more confident arteta in like the structure of the team one of the things that was very critical of him and and i still think accurately in his first year or so in charge was just like the substitutions were crap because it was always like for like and it didn't do anything to change the game this did we were like and I was looking at that space at left back and it didn't even really look like a back three to me. We literally just didn't have anyone. There. Yeah. <laughs> we kind of just said, look, that bit at the back, that bit of the pitch just isn't important anymore. We're taking that guy and we're sticking him in the penalty area. And it's not that sophisticated, but it works. It works. And so yeah, dominance and pays so, off. It turns out. <laughs> exactly. It, it was, it was on that lovely borderline where it's nearly reckless where like you know you're in the stadium you're one nil down and you're like right I want to see us going forward but even I when he made that sub I was like oh oh that's that's quite that's quite ballsy um, to do that we've still got like 25 minutes Um, and this is the other good thing about having five subs right is as soon as we get the second goal we can bring someone on to cover it again because if we'd played that last five minutes and we didn't have any subs left like we'd have had to have just stood someone at left back um someone probably random but instead we can bring Tommy Asu on so yeah two elements to that substitution I loved which was the performance of Eddie himself he even though he didn't score the winner or the like I think he has a big part in Arsenal winning this game and he can feel happy about that and he can feel involved but at the same time I do think like the soft factor element of it was was really really important and good coaching good interventional coaching yeah and Fulham deserve credit because like they had a lot of good last-ditch clearances and last-ditch tackles. There's another day where this game is played and it's it's 5-0 to Arsenal because, I mean, Gabriel Jesus is in and the ball is taken off his toe. Martinelli is in and the ball is taken off his toe. Shaka slides it to Jesus, passes it, not quite far enough. Good stop by Leno. Couple of really good saves by Leno. Um, there's... Uh, there's one on Enkedia. There's the ball over the top to Enkedia that he can't quite clear his feet and get it out of. I mean, there were. I mean, Martinelli had a gorgeous shot that skims off Tosin's head, just off his head, and goes for a corner, and it's a goal. If Tosin, I mean, if Tosin is a centimeter shorter in in his leap and it doesn't skim off his head, it's a gorgeous goal. So, like, there were just a lot of those nearly moments in this game. We, I, w- I want to talk Gabriel, but I want to talk Saka first. Mm-hmm. So, Paul, like, I, I think it's. It's fair to say that if our belief is that Bukayo Saka is one of the best forwards in, in Premier League football, that he's not playing at that level right now, that he is still good, 
that we still love him, that he's still doing great, and that there's still more he can be giving. I, I, Theo Walcott actually came to mind for me because the time where Sack is in, just clearly in, this is what you get when you have inverted wingers. He didn't want to take it on his right. So he cuts it on his left. And to be fair, he does well to cut to his left and get a shot off. He just can't get it far enough outside of Leno to clear him. That's the Theo Walcott position, though, right? That's where Theo Walcott... Didn't he have a hat trick against Croatia and all three goals were that that position? And he used to score from that position all the time. Right channel, across the keeper, low and across him, right? Like, that's what you get when you have a right footer on the right side. We have a left footer on the right side. And so he wants to cut it back. I'm curious where you where you are with Saka right now because I think... I feel like he's one of those guys that's right on the brink of being able to go supernova because he's in getting in the right positions. He's he's involved. It's not that he's not finding dangerous positions. He's maybe just not getting his shot off quick enough or being quite decisive enough with the, with that final ball. And obviously, that's the hardest thing to do in football. So, you know, it's, it's easy to say, oh, all he needs to do is put the ball in the back of the net. I, I get it. That's the hard bit. But what do you, what do you think of his level? Because I, I think there's a tendency sometimes to treat certain players with kid gloves when it comes to really authentically appraising their performances. And I am willing to sit here and say, I expect more from Bukayo Saka. I think he is he is better than what, what he's done so far. And that is a that is a compliment, not not a critique, so to speak. But what's your take on that? Um I guess I think there's there's two halves to his performance. Um and maybe three things I observe. Um his relationship with Odegaard, like we were a little concerned about the right side in the first three games, a little, little rub in our hands, worrying, you know, were Odegaard and Sack, and like they, they were, on were it this game. yeah, uh, the ESP between the two of them, and and we always say getting into the good positions is half the battle. Then like what happened with Odegaard, he he buried a couple of goals, and suddenly he's on fire. So I'm not, I definitely think he was shaking his head after he missed that great opportunity in the first half, understandably. And I wouldn't be surprised if it stayed in his head a little bit and he was a little frustrated because he's he's probably frustrated from the start of a season that he hasn't re- got the end product he's looking for. Uh, he plays a big role in the Odegaard goal in this game. Mm. So yeah. I, I think True. all his connective stuff, all, his, all the play down the right-hand side that he's involved in, I think he's superb in this game. It's just that final bit, the end product, and he's missing a couple of percent in terms of kind of uh, the definitive shot at the end, the confidence to steer it around the keeper. So I'm not too worried about it. Um, the The pluses for me in this game was him and Odegaard were brilliant together, just totally SP. Um, and the second thing... I came away from this game from because it was a little bit of a got a little crazy at times. Saka was all over the place, and at times he got into those spots we talk about, where he's the right eight or the left eight on the ball, and like you see a guy who can play as we we all believe and suspect in any position across the front. Maybe even we haven't really seen him play a striker, but he can do everything else. He's fantastic when he pops up in left eight and right eight. And so, you know, had we got Rafinha, we could play that. That guy starts every game he's fit. I mean, there's always a spot for him. Um, So overall, I'm like super encouraged. He just needs to put the ball in the net once or twice and it'll all come flooding back. But yeah, he's, he's missing a couple of percent of his 
I kind of said brilliance on the instant reaction podcast, but it's really just that end product, putting the ball in the back of the net thing, but you only get a couple of shots a game. So, Yeah, yeah, and I think, like, this isn't concern trolling, right? This is just, yeah. you know, as of last season, we were saying he's our best player, and, and he probably was. And this season, maybe you could say, well, Gabriel Jesus is our best player. But, like, if, if that's the level, if he's our talismanic player – or, or certainly a candidate for it, then I think that there's another level he can go up. I do totally agree that the Odegaard and Saka relationship combination play was back a bit. Um, I think Ben White also deserves a lot of credit for helping that side look a lot more influential and effective. He was really, really good in this game. The the Gabriel Mar- Magalhaes thing, though, Tim, like, I'm so, so glad the winner, he gets the win, right? And you see what it means to him in his interview with Sky Sports after he's like, did you like my celebration? Like, he, you know, he, he had a big smile. I, familiarity definitely breeds contempt. There's no question about it. Because William Saliba scores an own goal. And everybody's got his back, and nobody's saying a bad thing about him and still thinks he's amazing. Gabriel makes a mistake. A bad, bad mistake, certainly. From a pass, that puts him in a little tricky situation, but still, he shouldn't make the mistake there. And you see stuff like he's terrible, get out of my club, you know, all the usual nasty internet stuff. And to be fair, sometimes you just got to tune that out because there's there's that everywhere. There are people two games ago saying Odegaard sucks. Um, but I, I do think that Gabriel is an excellent player who has been our best and most consistent defender for a few years. He is a really good passer. All the data shows it, but sometimes we forget it because occasionally he has a sloppy one and the sloppy one sticks in your mind and you forget the really excellent work he does outside of that. He is influential in the opposition penalty area. You know, he he can score goals for us and has scored goals for us. And he has a habit of popping up in big moments to do it. I love the player. I, I accept that he is not perfect, that he is not flawless. I don't know too many teams that have two flawless center backs. I mean, we, we've even seen lately Virgil van Dyke getting embarrassed. I'm very happy with Gabriel. I'm glad he gets the winner. I loved seeing the way the team reacted to him, specifically pick, li- helping lift him up. It was ironic because in all or nothing... There's a moment where Mikel Arteta is saying, you made an error today, we pick you up. That happens. You forget it. You make an error, we move on. Now, ironically, it was Gabriel he was talking to at the time. So here we are. But but what's what's your take on that? Am I too high on the player? Like, Do, do you think that his his errors are too frequent or are you comfortable with with him being our sort of anchor of the defense? Yeah, I'm, I'm totally comfortable with it. He's um, He's got big Koscielny vibes to me, both in his style and also, you know, that happened to Koscielny um, during his Arsenal career. And I, I always kind of accepted that as part of like, he's an, you know, he's an engagement defender, right? Mm. And those defenders, they're going to make more mistakes. They're going to get red cards. They're going to give away penalties just like Koscielny did. But the upside, you know, that if you're good at doing that, the numbers go in your favour and you just kind of have to accept. Now, th- this mistake isn't down to that. This mistake, like, it was a weird one. Like, in the ground, I was, I couldn't work out why it happened. Do you know what I mean? It wasn't one of those, like, oh, it's a technical passing out error. It can happen. I, I was a bit, why did he, like, even about the pass, the touch, I was just a bit like, what, why did he wait on the ball? Even when, like, Mitrovic was on his shoulder. He didn't try to, but, you know, whatever. Uh, uh, mm-hmm. So, Tim, my thought on that was he's always been able to bully other players physically. And then he tried Mitrovic. it, didn't he? He leans his shoulder in and I think yeah, he, he backs He thinks himself. he can screen it, yeah. Yeah, and and probably against 
nearly all the strikers in the league he probably could but Mitrovic is one of those that's that's a fight you don't pick if, yeah. if you don't have to but but generally speaking it big Koscielny vibes to me and we saw over time Koscielny iron like obviously not totally like no one ever irons floors out totally but we saw Koscielny kind of transition from that mid-20s defender who was really really good made the odd error to like the late twenties, early thirties, when he was like the senior professional, and um, and and I'm really confident we can see something like that in Gabriel as well. L- like you said, Elliot, about his passing numbers, it's really weird because I've always considered like Ben White the you know of the two, Ben White very crudely and broadly speaking when they played together last season, you know you'd say Ben White's the passer and Gabriel's mm-hmm. the defender. But but you're right. I, when I wrote um, a piece about Ben White the other week, I was looking at like the FB ref stats because I really wanted to pull stuff out about Ben White's passing, and I was really expecting to be able to say like, yeah, he's like here are his passing numbers. They're like the best and like the most progressive distance and all of that. And when I filtered it, it was Gabriel. It's all Gabriel. Like yep. yeah, yeah, yeah. And it surprises you. And when you think about it as well, what we've done while Gabriel's been here is we've taken Jacker out of that area of the team. So when Gabriel first arrived, he didn't really have to, you know, for, for the worse, I think, for the team, he didn't really have to pass the ball that much or that impressively because it was like we were so Jacker dominant, dependent when it came to distribution. It was like okay, I'll, I'll move it five yards to you and you do everything. And obviously that's changed. And Gabriel's a big part of the reason that that's changed because he, we've been comfortable with him distributing from that position. And that's something that I probably hadn't, hadn't kind of cycled through my head enough. Um, so he is a good distributor, but I think he's a really good defender as well. And to your point about his set-piece threat, was he our second top scorer last season, second or third? Um, or something like that. That's, like that's that's con- <laughs> that's consistent. <laughs> of course, of course. But that's consistent set piece threat. And what's quite interesting is they're not always all headers. I don't think. I think there's quite a lot of. I think the, the winnery scores at West Ham, which is a header, like a lot of it's second phase as well. So like. Yeah it's a lot of it's like him anticipating the drop of a ball or not just like like this goal this isn't just him nutting in across it's like all right leno kind of drops it but like well also he, he runs he's the guy who runs from deep and arrives late so you come yeah. and i think saliba's in the picture and then suddenly gabriel comes in so it is actually his run that brings the yeah. force yeah I, yep. indeed because like am i right in saying ben white hasn't scored a header from a corner for us like so yeah of, of the relationship you're right like ben white's probably the guy i'd have to go back and look at this but i imagine ben white's the guy who stands on the six yard box or stands on the keeper or saliba in this case and gabrielle's the one who actually goes and attacks it yeah I, one of the things that oh by the way tim did, did you have a view um, from where you were of Zinchenko running the touchline to join the celebrations I, and, and, I didn't. and the security being like, is, is, is this a fan? What do we do? Like they like, <laughs> they, they were going to go try to get him, but then like, no, that that's Zinchenko. <laughs> it's just, yeah. It's I, I, I didn't at the time. I'm, I'm on the other side of, um, of the pitch to that. And I was, um, I was, uh, otherwise engrossed, I think. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, like they thought he was a pitch invader and then they, and my, I, my, my vision was a little bit blurry. I think at that point. He's a madman. There's a video going around on the internet of someone who was sat right behind the bench, I guess, of his investment in the game emotionally all game long, like just going nuts with it, trying to kick every ball, head every ball, and then running to celebrate. It was brilliant. Um, but again, well, the like, 
Sorry, I just wanted to add on on that specific point. We spoke, didn't we, after the Bournemouth game about the Saliba thing, and I said, like, how has Zinchenko built up this such this swift relationship with Saliba and, you know, effusive about him and never seen... Like, Zinchenko's been with us five minutes and he already seems to have that... That can and and that's I think all the soft factor stuff we talk about with bringing in Zin, Zinchenko and Jesus, that's it right there. Like Zinchenko, yep. you you bring him in, he is a me like he's not just passing through. I think he even said in his opening interview, like I'm not here to mess about, kind of thing, and you can see that. Yeah, yeah, and 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 it's beautiful. I, Paul, the one thing that sort of aggravated me, I like not aggravated me, but I I think is still a thing with this team. This is a group of young players that wants it real bad. They want it real, real bad. And we saw that last season. And sometimes when you want it real, real bad, you you put more pressure on yourself. You make it more stressful. And we saw the team sort of go to pieces against Newcastle. And we, we saw the way the season finished, disappointingly. And I don't think it's any surprise that once the pressure was off, you know, we went and routed Everton at home on the last day of the season. I, I think that sometimes when you want it too much, so much, it can... It can inhibit you. And I think you see that after we get the lead. There is no reason for us to be giving Fulham chances to win that game late. The 300,000 passes that you keep the ball and kill the game off. We really didn't get control of the game at the end. Not not properly. And suddenly you start to see crazy stuff like under no pressure by our own byline. Instead of just passing our way out, literally like, scooping a clearance to the top of the box for what winds up being, I guess it was a drop kick. It wasn't a foul, but um, there were just a lot of really nervy little final moments that I don't think needed to Mm -hmm. be there. And I wonder if you think that there's still a little fragility to this team, just in the sense that they want it so much and then they get that lead and, and, and your energy has been so high to go chase the game and get that lead that maybe they struggled to just take a breath, get your composure, keep the ball, kill the game. Cause they, Fulham had a couple. I mean, Aaron Ramsdale winds up being a hero in this game. By the way, he has a couple big, big saves that I don't think he should have had to make. You know? Yeah, yeah, I, I can see that. I think I feel a bit differently about it. Surprise, surprise. Um, That's fine. I want to hear it. Like the Newcastle thing last last year. Like I think we just ran out of players, and we were yeah. You know, we just got reamed by Spurs and the trauma that like we just we were we were out of gas and i think maybe we need to like the problem with all or nothing is there's things you keep and things you let go this is a different team it's got a different vibe different trajectory i think the real issue i i know what you mean in that we had very little chill once we got our second goal and we needed to control the game and we had tommy yasu coming on holding up four fingers and i don't we had uh, holding coming on after that holding up like uh, 14 fingers, as many fingers as he could find to say, let's sit back, let's contain this. But I think the real issue uh, at the end of this game was we spent 30 minutes playing bonkers football, taking all the risks, and then it's like, oh, let's just transition with all of these players on the pitch. Like, we had one sub. We had, in reality, we had Eddie, which is quite an interesting conversation itself. Um be interesting to hear the reaction if we hadn't got any goals after bringing Eddie on. There would have been a lot of, oh, well, why didn't we use all our subs? And we used one sub, basically, until we got the second goal, if I remember it right. And we brought on Tommy and Holding, and we kind of 
settled things down and we contained it. But of course, it wasn't very contained because everybody had been playing uh, high-risk football, high-stakes football for 30 minutes and the transition to, oh, let's just calm things down. Like, players weren't in their positions. We'd had, As I said, we had three or four different left fullbacks. Martinelli was playing right fullback and left fullback. At one point, Saka had been playing left fullback. I think we were just scrambled. And then, to your point, definitely a bit panicky. Because like now we're like, oh shit, we got it. But we got it a little early. We got it on the 89th minute and we've got, whatever, six minutes to go, five minutes after the restart. And yeah, there were nerves there. I think it's fine. I don't think we're going to have that much of a mentality issue. Uh, everything's changed now that we can do comebacks, now that we can build up ahead of steam. Now there's something called Arteta time in the Fergie time mode. Like, we can actually apply pressure, which we really couldn't do last year. We'd have 20 minutes, 30 minutes where we needed to chase a goal, and not much would happen last year because we didn't really have the players, I don't think, Mm -hmm. the players to change games and the level of football that we've just pegged now. And, like, so uh, I don't, like I said at the start of the season, I don't think comebacks are going to be a problem for this year. I did say that, um, <laughs> and here we are. And I, I, I think we just got to let that stuff go a little bit. Um, yeah, we were very, very nervy here, but I don't think it's a, it's a squad mentality issue. You can just look at the game on its merits and say, well, that's because we had everybody going bonkers for 30 minutes and have not recalibrated to, oh, now we just need to sit back, control the game, and do simple things. And yeah. we'll learn that in the next... If we have a few more comebacks, we'll learn this stuff. Yeah. No, that... that I mean, look, I, I want to be clear that this... I wasn't, like, outraged about yeah. it. It's just... I, I felt that the... Tim, that the last few minutes of this game were nervier than they needed to be for a team that we... I mean, we had 75% possession for most of this game. Yeah. And then suddenly you can't keep the ball. You know, and I, I think that the explanation for that can't be technical... It has to be a little bit psychological. And to be fair, to Paul's point also, you've been trying to basically batter down the door for a half hour and put everybody in the attacking half and Fulham are making no effort to get the ball in your half. And so there's this change of, of mindset and tactics that you suddenly have and to And nobody to. had a position for like the last 15 yeah, minutes. It, it, it was, was just vibes. be wherever. It was vibes, yeah. right. But, but so do you think that that... And look, this isn't a thing. Like we won the game. It's fine. It's just that that little bit of ability to to create that calm that 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 peaceful possession that Arteta wants us to be able to use to kill off games and and the extent to which we we maybe struggled just a little bit to get our foot on the ball and keep like there was a lot of kicking it long like just get it you know just get it away just clear it when I don't think we needed to and I think that's just sort of a desire to get over the line and to be fair as I go with the Paul slash Elliot version of a question where you just keep adding to it. There were players cramping. I think the players gave a lot and exerted a lot in that effort to make the comeback and were starting to suffer physically. I think Ben White was cramping. Martinelli ended the game with cramps. So maybe there was also just a little bit of they were they were spent. Um, but but what do you think about that? The the last few minutes of the game and, and sort of our, our inability to really come to grips with it and just to get it over the line. Yeah, I think probably just an inexperienced thing. We literally did this once last season, and when we got the winner, it was basically with the last kick. So there wasn't like, I mean, with injury time, there was around 10 minutes to manage. Like when we did that against Wolves, there was kickoff to manage, basically. 
um, and you know we had to bring a sub on and 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 all of that. Um, so I, I do think it's just an experience thing. I, like I think I remember saying after the Palace game, maybe like when we did seem to fall into that sitting back at one nil, and um, I was talking about how like maybe one time, like the more it works the more you kind of lean on it, you know, and maybe we need for our long-term health for that not to work once so that we don't do it anymore. This is kind of the other way around, right? Like we've, we've done that now we've got, you know, we've, we've turned the game around and by the way, not just turned the game around. So we, you know, we only did that once last season against Wolves. And in that game, Wolves went one nil up after about 15 minutes. Like we had 75 minutes or so to get our shit together against Wolves and it ran to the wire. We did this in 20 minutes yesterday, um, you know, 64. And I think Gabriel gets the winner on 85. Like mm-hmm. that, that, that's pretty, that well, it's definitely quicker <laughs> than we've been, than we've been doing. I think I read that this is the first time Arsenal have won after going behind in the second half since December 2013. So you know, it, it was a what? quick turnaround. Yeah, yeah. So, 2013. So, yeah, yeah. So this is the first time that we've gone a goal down during the second half and still won the game in uh, nearly mm-hmm. nine years. So that, that shows you it's it's Pull like the stat. Yeah, yeah, it's very, very new to this team. And to be fair, like not many teams do that. Generally speaking, if you go a goal down in the second half, like you might draw quite a lot. You you probably rarely win. So, you know, it's it's fair folks it's a, is basically yeah, your point. Fair folks to us. It, it, essentially, yeah, yeah. Like this kind of thing doesn't happen that often. But the more we come from behind, whether it's in twenty minutes or the more, I think we'll we'll probably get a better handle on the situation. I, I do think you're right. I do think it was an emotional thing, and that immediate switch for both teams, where it's like an economies of scale thing, where you go into a oh shit, like 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 a dog running after a stick. It's like oh, I've got it now. Like what do I do with it? And then uh, while you're doing that, the other team is going oh god, we've like we've got a switch from like. And, and actually, I kind of think, particularly when you're tired, it's easier to switch to all-out attack than it is to switch to all-out defence. And we showed that ourselves when we went 1-0 down. Like, we we threw that striker on and we just went, right, let's do what we've been doing already, but, like, times five. I think it's easier to flip into that mindset than it is the other mindset. And, and I think we just saw a bit of that. Yeah, I, I think that's fair enough. And And to be clear, like... I'm sort of making something out of nothing. I just think it was an interesting finish to the game because it felt very nervy in the moment. I think now that we're beyond the game, you forget that. But I was bricking it for the end of the game. And naturally, of course, they get that free kick that shouldn't be a free kick. And they get a really good chance out of it that Ramsdale saves quite brilliantly. So, you know, that just had me be like, Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I suppose also like the kind of price you pay for having a more engaged crowd is you get a more anxious crowd as well in those moments. And, it's a fair and point. you know, as much as like, and that's not me blaming the fans, but um, you know, I was there as well. Um, you know, like it, it, as much as like they lift you, like it just does mean when people are more emotionally involved that there's more anxiety in those moments, and that energy must, you know, possibly feeds in as well. Yeah, that sort of frisson that passes through the the crowd, like it transmits to the players. Um, well, Tim, I mean, it's interesting because now we have a game again on Wednesday uh, against Villa. I think we got lucky. We play Villa at home and United. So we play Wednesday. United play Thursday evening, right? Obviously. And then we go to Old Trafford 
So they have one less day to prepare. They have to go to Leicester. We get to stay home and Leicester are crap. So I'm not expecting much from that. But I think that, you know, these little margins, fine margins, maybe you get a little bit lucky there. But the Villa game is the end of this run that we looked at. The end of this August run of games that you say, we, we're going to be favorites in all of these. We got a chance to run the table. And now here we are. And this is the last one. Don't look at October. If you can spare yourself, don't look at it because it's scary as hell. Now we get twice a week. Now we get Europa League. That's all coming. To me, this game has to be a win. This is the one where you say we banked 15 points from 15 and we've given ourselves some cushion so that when it gets hard, look, you want to win every game, but you know, we we can we've we've built up a little credit for the for the rough period. I don't know that Zinchenko will be available. I don't know that um party will be available. I certainly think if it's between pushing them back for Wednesday or making sure they're available for Old Trafford, I'm fine with him waiting because I think we could still get it done against Villa without them. But how are you feeling about this game? Our our first quick turnaround, do you think Arteta might take the risk of some additional rotation? You know, maybe a Smith Rowe coming in um, for a, a Saka or a Martinelli or maybe an Enkedia coming. I can't see Gabriel Jesus not starting, but maybe just maybe. What, what, do, you, what do you think the manager's approach is going to be with our first our first quick turnaround and, and a, a week that I think is a really, really critical one for us. Yeah, I, I always fancied when we were talking about the Fulham game and the Thursday pod, I always fancied that Fulham was not the one that we'd we'd see any rotation, that it'd be more likely to be Villa, L- largely also because of the proximity of the Villa game to Manchester United, but also Villa haven't, they didn't end last season very well, they haven't started this season very well. Uh, the one I'm really interested, I, th- I think I think there'll be one other change. So I think like Tierney and El Nenu will stay in. I think there will be one change in attack and it, and it might be Smith-Rowe for Martinelli. I've just got a feeling that he'll want to reward Nketiah now, hmm. the, the reason I find that fascinating, though, is because I don't think he'll not start Gabriel Jesus. I don't know, maybe he won't, but like, I just wonder if maybe Nketiah starts in Martinelli's position or something like that. I've just got, like, I think generally what we see with Arteta is he wants to reward players when they play well, whether it means sticking with the team when they're winning and playing well, or if someone comes off the bat. Like, I've just got a little feeling that he might, giving Ketia a start and just say, okay, look, there's the Europa League in Zurich next week. After this, you'll start that. But you know what? You did really well. Um, you're going to start this game as well. And probably not Old Trafford. Um, you know, we'll probably go a little bit more. Um, we'll go back to the team, as it were, that's that's largely started the other games. But, you know, I, I can't see... Like, for example, I, I don't think he'll change the defence. So I think, like, Tommy Asu mm. might might be on the bench again until he can get back in. But yeah, I, I think we'll see either Smithrow or Nketiah. But Smithrow was an unused sub again yesterday. Nketiah's the guy he threw on. And uh, it's it's just that question of would he start with Nketiah wide or is that just like a thing that he's happy to do for the last 20 minutes? Because I don't think he'll start without Gabriel Jesus. So that's the one I've got my eye on. I've just got a little inkling that, that Eddie might start in Martinelli's position and, and Martinelli might get a rest. That's, that's my prediction. Interesting, because I, I think of the front three, the one who you know maybe has not been firing the most would be Saka. Um, and he's the one who just has so many Could minutes do. in his legs over the last year. So Could be. That could be an option. I, I'm inclined to think he might just try to run it back. The, the issue is, if he's going to keep Zinchenko and Party out, I don't think he'll want to do additional changes on top of that. 
is my suspicion. Um, maybe he'll be more aggressive using the five subs earlier. I don't know. The the thing with Villa, they've been pretty diabolical. They lost today 1-0 to West Ham in a game that was dreadful. Their attack has not fired at all, which is really strange because they have some excellent attacking players. Um, it'll be really interesting to see how that goes, Paul. But, I mean, do you suspect that he might want to change it up? Or do you think his willingness to change it up might hinge a little bit on whether he has the option to pick Sinchenko and party? Uh, my my read of it is he'll keep it the same as much as he can. Like he's setting a a level, a line for how we're playing. We got four days. We'll have another four days to United. Uh, Martinelli and his relationships with Jesus. Um, like he he was the surprise for me on the rewatch. Watch. I thought he was great. Really did. And I didn't. Uh, I thought it was just a Martinelli game when I watched it the first time around. Maybe all those bad corner kicks and crosses maybe made yeah, me think he wasn't having much. He was fucking fantastic. Um, him, uh, Odegaard. Like, I absolutely agree. Um, Arteta would be itching to reward Enketia, but he may just reward him by getting him another great 30 minutes here, keep him very involved. Uh, as Tim pointed out, Enketi must have been having a great time in this game. He's going to come away from that on a high. Um, the game before that, I mentioned in the the uh, uh, Insta reaction, when Eddie came on, um, he came on about 75 minutes, I think, against Bournemouth, and him and Arteta were having a huge laugh, like not just a bit of a smile or whatever, like, like an a kind of an in-joke thing. Like, I think their relationship right now <laughs> is in a great place. I think Europa League coming out up, I think they just they just pace it. Eddie's going to get lots of 30-minute spells for Jesus or somebody else, probably not Jesus. Um, it took taking off Tierney this time. That's the real problem. Martinelli, Saka, uh, Jesus, and Odegaard. You didn't not want to have them on the pitch uh, in the last... 30 minutes of this game that we just watched. That's the problem for Enketia. You want to reward him, but those guys are all absolutely on fire, even if we're waiting for a little bit more from Saka. Um, so I think it's just going to be, it's a long season. Like Eddie ended up the la uh, last season uh, in blistering form, not, not really having figured for us. Mm -hmm. And he's going to have so many more opportunities to start to play I think Arteta will just be saying, give me another game or just be, keep pushing. You're almost there and your starts are coming. And I think for Villa, to your point, you, you roll, get your 15 points or whatever we're on and then on to United and then Europa League starts and there's going to be a lot, all of that fluidity is going to come along. Smith Rowe will get his minutes. People will have a chance to shine and the good problems we have now are too many good players who need to get on the pitch. Yeah. Well, and I mean, dare I say it, there may be more good players coming. That That is going to be the interesting thing. Mikel Arteta has repeatedly said we're trying to get more firepower. By the time the Villa game kicks off, there could be a new face on the bench. Certainly by the time we go to Old Trafford, there could be a new face on the bench. And... I mean, whether it's Neto and Tielemans or whether it's someone we haven't even heard of yet or whoever it might be, 
I think there's definitely one coming. I just get the sense that there's one coming. And so it'll be very interesting to see how that shakes things up too. I mean, imagine if you are Enkedia or you're Emil Smith-Rowe or you're Sambi Lakanga or you're Rob Holding or any of these guys right now, you know, damn, my level is going to have to be real high to get into this team and it's only going to get harder. So, you know, that's one thing, right? If you're Bukayo Saka, you're our star player. Lift that level, baby. Let's go. Let's bring the whole thing up another level. And hopefully, we will do just that on Wednesday against Villa. There'll be more to come between now and then, of course, and in reaction that day as well. Paul's on Twitter. Pause my pants. Thanks, Paz. Woohoo! Tim's on Twitter. Sumberto. Thanks, Tim. My pleasure as always. My name is Elliot Smith. Blockman on Twitter. Yankee Gunner. Please join us next time as Paul seeks to break the world record for longest question asked, breaking my previous record of 17 and a half minutes. We love you, and we will talk to you after Arsenal 10. Villanova. 